75 years ago, months after the Japanese attack at Pearl Harbor, the federal government opened up 10 concentration camps to warehouse every one of the 120,000 people of Japanese ancestry from the West Coast. Two-thirds of them were U.S. citizens. Most people believe that such a thing should never happen again in the United States to any group, racial, ethnic, religious, or otherwise. I'm Eric Muller, and I think the best way to make sure something doesn't happen again is to know what the thing was that actually happened. That's what this podcast does. It tells stories based on actual events in the lives of real people uprooted from their homes and forced to live in America's concentration camps, not because of anything they had done, but simply because of who they were. I call it Scapegoat Cities. Frank Yamasaki's defense lawyer hadn't really been doing much for him as his federal trial for evading the draft got underway in a Boise, Idaho federal courtroom in September of 1944. The lawyer had barely taken a moment to meet with him in the days leading up to the trial. When they did meet, Frank had tried to explain to him that if all he wanted to do was avoid going in the army, he could have just mentioned his tuberculosis, and that he was doing this for the principle of the thing, and not because he was a traitor or a coward. But his lawyer hadn't shown any interest. Don't get your hopes up, was all the lawyer had said to him. So as Judge Chase Clark started to administer the jury oath to the 12 Boise residents who were going to decide his case, Frank was startled when his lawyer got up and objected to the makeup of the jury panel. Your Honor, the lawyer said, there's simply no way these jurors can hear this case with an open mind. Judge Clark did not look happy. He had 38 of these cases to get through, 38 identical felony draft evasion cases against young Japanese-American defendants from Minidoka, the place everyone called the Jap Camp, over near Twin Falls, and he wanted to get through them quickly. That's why Judge Clark had had the clerk of the court bring in 36 residents of Boise for jury service and let them know to tell their bosses and their families that they'd be tied up for the next couple of weeks hearing these cases. What could the problem be? Judge Clark asked Frank's lawyer. We've already been through it with these jurors. They've already been vetted in other cases. That's just the problem, Frank's lawyer said. They've been hearing these draft cases for days now. Every single one of these jurors has heard at least five cases, Your Honor. For two of them, This is their 11th draft resistance trial in eight days. No disrespect to these hardworking ladies and gentlemen, Judge, but aren't we asking too much of them if we think they can decide Frank Yamasaki's case on its own merits without mixing him up with all the others they've been convicting? Frank was relieved. After two and a half years of getting kicked around by the government just for having Japanese parents, someone was finally helping him stick up for his rights. Nobody had stood up for him or his family when the government kicked them out of Seattle back in the spring of 1942, or when it had locked them up for the summer of 1942 at the makeshift concentration camp at the Puyallup Fairgrounds, or when it had shipped them inland to the permanent camp called Minidoka in the fall of 1942, or a year and a half later when it started drafting the Nisei, the young Japanese-American citizens, out of the camps and into the army. 
Now, finally, Frank's lawyer had woken up and was looking out for him. Frank was in a federal court in front of a black-robed judge whose job was to be fair and neutral and to protect the constitutional rights of people, no matter who they were or where their parents were from. That's the system Frank had learned about in high school. But none of that did him much good. Judge Clark denied his lawyer's challenge to the jury, and his trial began with the same white faces in the jury box that had already condemned as many as 11 of his fellow draft resistors from Minidoka. And then the judge wouldn't let them put on a defense, wouldn't let them show the jurors how badly he'd been treated, how even though he was an American citizen, he'd been kicked out of his home and locked up because of his Japanese face. The only issues are whether your client got the draft notice and whether he failed to show up for induction, Judge Clark told Frank's lawyer. Well, of course he had. Whether was not what mattered. What mattered was why. To really understand why, you need to know a little more about who Frank Yamasaki was and what he'd been through. When he was born in 1923, his Japanese immigrant parents were living in Seattle's International District, where lots of Chinese and Japanese and Filipinos lived. Frank proved to be a sickly child, and when a doctor told his parents that living in the International District wasn't doing anything good for his health, they decided to move south of town a few miles, to the more rural area of South Park. They were told that the air would be better for him down there among the trees and the fields. Today, South Park is an urban neighborhood at the western edge of the massive installation of runways and hangars at Boeing Field that any Seattle visitor can't help but notice while driving up the 5 from SeaTac Airport to the city. But in 1926, when Frank was three, it was a little town of Italian and Japanese farmers, a checkerboard of tree-lined fields along the banks of the Duwamish River. Their little house sat with a field of vegetables on one side and an orchard on the other. A little creek ran out front. Frank would pick a carrot or an apple if he was hungry. Nobody thought a thing of it. He'd catch minnows in the creek with a handkerchief. School was mostly Italian kids and other Nisei like him. Frank grew up and grew healthy in South Park. The Yamasakis left the country for the city when Frank was in his teens, moving just north of downtown to the place they called Belltown, a neighborhood of movie distribution centers and prostitutes, where they found a hotel to lease and run. 56 rooms, nothing fancy, and Frank ended up doing a lot of the work because his parents couldn't really speak English. Frank delivered newspapers, too. They weren't wealthy people, the Yamasakis, but they did have the hotel business, and it kept them going. After Pearl Harbor, things moved quickly. At his mostly white high school, Frank found himself shunned. Friends turned away from him when they saw him in the hallway. By April of 42, Frank and his family knew they had to leave, although they didn't know where they were being sent, and they had to scramble to get ready. They were over a barrel, and everyone knew it. One of their tenants who'd had an unusually good fishing season in Alaska bought the whole business from them for $500, a fraction of what it was worth. They knew they could take with them only a couple of suitcases each, so they stored most of their belongings in one of the hotel rooms under the care of the white assistant manager. Of course, when they got back to Seattle years later when it was all over, the assistant manager was long gone, and so were their belongings. The family showed up for removal at the appointed time, on the appointed day, at the appointed street corner, a few blocks from what until recently had been their hotel. 
people showed up in their Sunday best because otherwise they'd have to leave it behind. Their suitcases and duffel bags were already stuffed. They boarded buses as armed sentries looked on. The buses pulled away. Dinah Shore's hit song Skylark played on the bus's radio. Skylark, have you seen a valley green with spring where my heart can go a journey over the shadows and the rain to a blossom covered lane? The Puyallup Fairgrounds sit about 40 miles south of Seattle, just east of Tacoma. That's where the Washington State Fair was held in the 1940s, and still is today. You've probably been to a state fair. Pig races, Ferris wheels, candy apples, fun for the whole family. That was where Frank's bus went, but there was no Ferris wheel. There was a barbed wire fence, and military guard towers with searchlights and rows and rows of barracks covering everything, the parking lots, inside the oval of the racetrack, even under the grandstands. Its official name was the Puyallup Assembly Center, but some government official had the audacity to rename it Camp Harmony. By the end of May, well over 7,000 people were crammed unharmoniously into those barracks. Nothing much happened at Puyallup, a lot of sitting around and stewing, and a lot of standing in line, People forget a lot or block it out, but they remember the lines for supplies for their barrack rooms, for straw to fill their mattresses, for food in the mess halls, for medical care, for the toilets with no stalls and the showers in the latrines. Frank's little brother got the measles and the family had to shift to an abandoned area of the camp where there was no electricity. A nurse brought them a candle. In the fall, they were on a train for Idaho for Minidoka. It was a lot like Puyallup, but much bigger and more spread out. Frank and his two brothers and their parents were assigned a slightly bigger barrack room there, five of them in a room that was 16 feet by 20 feet, just an open space with five metal cot frames and a cast iron coal-burning stove for heat. Frank's parents clustered three of the beds on one side of the room for themselves and little George, and put the other two on the opposite side of the room for 19-year-old Frank and his middle brother. No walls, no privacy, just five family members in one open space. The Yamasakis were together in their room at night, but during the daytime, they tended to go their separate ways. Frank did a little bit of work on the camp newspaper and quite a bit of dancing. He was 19, locked up with a lot of other 19-year-olds, and many of them were girls. They'd clear out the furniture from one of the common areas, a mess hall or recreation room, push it to the sides, and turn on a radio. KTFI from Twin Falls playing the hits of 1943, Duke Ellington's Sentimental Lady. People Will Say We're In Love by Frank Sinatra. And the Ink Spots version of Duke Ellington's Don't Get Around Much Anymore. Don't get around much anymore. In the spring of 43, Frank signed a paper attesting to his loyalty, and he was released from Minidoka to find work in Spokane, Washington. He found a job washing dishes, the swing shift. He got off after midnight. During the daytime, he took classes at a local business college. In his spare time, he mostly chased girls and danced. He didn't sleep much. 
Frank got run down and developed a fever and a rattling cough, and an x-ray showed tuberculosis in his lungs. Soon he was back in confinement, but this time it was at a sanitarium for five or six months where he slowly got well. He also got angry. While Frank was in the sanitarium, he got a visit from an old friend from Seattle, another young Nisei named Gordon Hirabayashi. Gordon was a Quaker and a man of peace and of conscience, and he had decided back in the spring of 1942 that he was not going to go along with the government's program for Japanese Americans. This was before the camps, before the mass uprooting, when the only measure in place was a curfew that made it illegal for any Japanese American to be out after dark. German Americans and Italian Americans could go about their business as usual, even though Germany and Italy were also at war with the United States. Only the Issei and Nisei were confined to their homes. So Gordon just went about his business too, even after the sun went down. Then, when the government instructed all Japanese Americans that they had to register with the FBI, Gordon showed up and told them he had no intention of doing so. So they arrested him, learned that he had been violating the curfew, and charged him with a crime for it. He was convicted and served time in a prison in Arizona, and when he got out, he went to Spokane. That's where he visited Frank in the sanitarium. You have a lot of time on your hands in a sanitarium, and the two young men talked for hours. Gordon shared with Frank his firm conviction that the government was violating the constitutional rights of the Nisei, kicking them out of their homes and locking them up in concentration camps. Up to that point, Frank had thought the whole thing was a raw deal, but he lacked Gordon's sophistication, and so it was never more than a feeling, a dull, wordless resentment. Gordon gave Frank words. When Frank was well enough to leave the facility and rejoin his family at Minidoka, he was a changed man. The barbed wire and the armed sentries and the guard towers and the rows of dusty, bleak barracks came into focus for the first time as a prison, a prison he and thousands of other Issei and Nisei had been sentenced to without ever being charged with a crime or tried for one, other than the crime of being Japanese, that is. Frank's family noticed that something had changed in him. His brother took him aside and asked him what he was so angry about all the time. And then Frank got his draft notice. Yes, that's right, his draft notice. The government was actually going to conscript the Nisei out of the camps and into the army, make them leave their parents and their siblings behind in camp to go fight for someone else's freedom. There were some Japanese Americans who were all for this. One Nisei organization called the Japanese American Citizens League loved the idea of drafting Japanese Americans. It would be a chance to show the country that they were loyal, that they were 110% Americans, who happened to have Japanese parents. The organization's national leader insisted, and I'm quoting here, that somewhere on the field of battle, in a baptism of blood, we and our comrades must prove to all who question that we are ready and willing to die for the one country we know and pledge allegiance to. But at the Minidoka Relocation Center, Frank Yamasaki wasn't having any of it. He walked the issue around to his friends, asking them what they were going to do, and telling them that as far as he was concerned, the government could go scratch. If they'd release everyone from the camps and restore them to what their lives had been before evacuation, he'd be more than happy to serve. He was a loyal American. He was born in the United States. It was the only country he knew. But until that happened, he was not planning to show up. Some of his friends told him he was crazy. If you don't want to go to the army, they said, just go for your physical. You just got out of a sanitarium, Frank. Just fail the physical. Problem solved. 
Frank would just shake his head when they told him this. They just didn't understand. They hadn't had an afternoon with Gordon Hirabayashi, and they still didn't see the principle of the thing. And that was that. His data report for the physical exam came and went. One day in June, a couple of U.S. Marshals showed up at his barrack door and told him he'd been charged with the felony of resisting the draft. They let him pack up a few things and took him to a county jail, where he spent the summer of 1944 waiting for his trial, waiting for his chance to tell his story and make the judge and jury see how badly they'd all been treated, how they'd been treated like enemies in their own country, how outrageous it was for the government to turn around and draft them after locking them up for two years. That's the story he was waiting to tell to a judge and jury. But it was Judge Chase Clark and the jury that had already heard so many cases of other Nisei resistors from Minidoka and had convicted every single one of them. Frank's case was no different. He wasn't allowed to tell the jury why he resisted. The only issue was whether he had resisted, and he didn't dispute that. The jury's deliberations lasted all of a few minutes. Guilty. A week later, Frank was back in court with the other 37 resistors from Minidoka for sentencing. Judge Clark gave them three years and three months in the penitentiary and a fine of $300. It seemed kind of stiff to Frank, but he shouldn't have been surprised. There was something he didn't know about Judge Clark. Back in 1942, before he became a judge, he was the governor of Idaho. And back then, he had said publicly that he was prejudiced against the Japanese and that you couldn't trust them and that he didn't want them coming into Idaho except in concentration camps and that it would be better if the federal government would just send them all to Japan and sink the island. That's how Judge Clark saw the people at Minidoka. And that's how he saw Frank and the other draft resistors, too. Frank served his time at the McNeil Island Federal Penitentiary in the Puget Sound just off the city of Tacoma. The other Minidoka resistors were there with him, and so were resistors from other camps. So it wasn't too lonely, but it was bleak. Frank got out early for good behavior in 1946, long after the war had ended. By then, the camps had long been closed, and the Japanese had been allowed to return to the West Coast. Frank left jail and went back to Seattle to try to start over pretty much penniless and with a criminal record. President Truman relieved him of the record on Christmas Eve in 1947 when he pardoned all of the Nisei who'd resisted the draft during the war, but pardon was a whole lot slower in coming from his own community. The Nisei after the war were working hard to cement their image as patriotic Americans and it was the Japanese-American war veterans the community wanted white America to see, not the draft resistors like Frank. He got the cold shoulder most places he went. He'd walk into a room and people would whisper or look away. Sometimes he'd overhear people talking about him and the other draft resistors. Disloyal, they'd say. Bunch of cowards. Constitutional rights thing was a load of bunk. All they wanted was to dodge the draft, keep out of the army, stay safe, constitutional rights, my eye. That was the kind of thing they said. Sometimes the talk would nag at Frank, drag him down, make him question his own motives, sow doubt in the decision he had made back in Minidoka. But then he'd remember where it all started for him, hearing words of conscience from Gordon Hirabayashi in the sanitarium where he was laid up with tuberculosis. He'd think about being sick and how easy it would have been just to show up for his physical and fail it. In those moments, Frank knew the truth about his resistance. 
and even if it didn't persuade some of the others, it was enough for him. of land under starry skies above don't fence me in let me ride thanks for listening to this episode of scapegoat cities if you like what you hear let me know by leaving a comment at scapegoatcities.org or better yet let your friends and family know on twitter or facebook or however else you like to tell your people about the podcasts you like Maybe even turn on some people you don't know to Scapegoat Cities by rating and reviewing it on iTunes or wherever else you go to get your podcasts. I'm Eric Muller, and again, thanks for listening. Let me wander over yonder till I see the mountains rise. I want to ride to the ridge where the west commences and gaze at the moon until I lose my senses. I can't look at hobbles and I can't stand fences. Don't fence me in.